This is Agile Storytime with David Ritter. Some would say that in Agile organizations, technology architecture should be emergent. This means that tech standards and patterns aren't established and enforced top-down. Rather, standards originate in the dynamic clash of ideas that naturally occurs in cross-functional teams. Architecture requirements are driven by functional requirements. We don't create standards for their own sake. They exist to help facilitate the delivery of value to the user. Emergent standards should gain traction in the way a product does in a free market. The value of a particular standard, component, or approach becomes self-evident. Teams adopt standards because they're the fastest, best, and easiest way to deliver on their outcomes. Early adopters demonstrate success, creating awareness and momentum. Nobody has to be told. There may well be companies where a pure version of emergent architecture has worked well. Google is known for an open approach to software development, where an engineer can look at and potentially adapt code developed by other teams. Open source software projects rely on emergent architecture to some extent. But at Google, and with most open source projects, there are designated committers, people who serve as anchor points to ensure that contributed code is consistent with the project's architecture and standards. We've also seen examples of organizations that relied on a bottom-up approach to architecture where the outcome was far from ideal. At one commercial software company, teams were given high autonomy to develop their own architecture and designs for their products. There were published standards, but no effective mechanisms to share them, evolve them, or track how teams were or weren't employing them. There wasn't a formal notion of architecture governance or an approval process for teams who felt they needed to pursue approaches outside the standards. The good news is that the separate product teams were able to act with autonomy. They were responsive to their customers and able to quickly deliver new features. They were unencumbered by the need to coordinate or integrate with other teams and unburdened by the bureaucracy that something like an architecture review board would impose. Since individual products were pursuing their own goals, the teams had little incentive to collaborate. This is fine when the products are all standalone, but the market this company addressed began to demand a more integrated end-to-end -end experience that spanned the various individual offerings. When the company sought to integrate the products into a more cohesive suite, they found that the divergent architectures made this extremely complex. For example, there was no consistent way to identify a user and determine what permissions they'd been granted. Support costs escalated as the issues raised by customers became fragmented over a range of technology stacks. And when assessing the effectiveness of the product process overall, it became clear that several teams were reinventing the wheel, building components that already existed in other parts of the company. When you're riding a horse, you can fall off the right side of the horse. You can also fall off the left side of the horse. Staying on the horse requires balance. Architecture is a great example of an area where organizations can and do fall off either side. They're too strict about imposing top-down standards and approvals that unduly constrain teams' ability to innovate and adapt, or they're too loose and lose control of their technology in a tangle of ever-increasing fragmentation and complexity. Maintaining the right balance is vital and also a continual challenge. In this episode, we continue our conversation with Harsha Ramalingam, 
former vice president of e-commerce platforms, foundational technologies, and the CIO and CISO functions at Amazon, and explore how Amazon tries to ride this particularly willful steed. Harsha, in our last episode, we explored more generally how Amazon makes two pizza teams work at scale. The risk is that this results in chaos. And as you said, at Amazon, there is some chaos. However, a consistent, pervasive focus on customer experience helps teams align on what they do. Now we'd like to understand how teams also align on how they do things. In particular, how does Amazon develop complex, interdependent technology products in small, independent teams without resulting in too much chaos? At the highest level, there's a general agreement on API standards that get enforced and effectively get enforced through the development developer tools. And so this ensures interoperability for loosely coupled systems. So there's that going for you. But there is, however, no formal company level governance for architectures. So teams make their own decisions for the most part. Empirical results which are widely shared, influence the de facto consensus that emerges. So that is to say that, you know, teams try and experiment with different things. They share the results of what they have. And usually it's not all teams trying the same thing at the same time. You know, that's not how it works. You know, somebody hits a particular area of problem that requires an architectural thinking and solution to it. And so they happen to be at the front end of it, but there may be more than one team doing that and they take different directions. And so this is sort of an experiment, natural experiment that happens. And then people observe, they share the results. And really it's through this empirical process of understanding which ones work better than the others that often drives a consensus view and that becomes a de facto standard. But in addition to that, there are informal channels through which senior technical engineers communicate. And these are the principal, senior principals and distinguished engineers. And they exchange ideas, knowledge, and experience. So they have forums, you know, where they often get together and do this. And they are diffuse in that they are in all parts of the company and they plug into all kinds of teams everywhere. So as a result of that, there is this up and down notion. They bring experiences and they bring back experiences as well. So to a large extent, because they're highly respected, some of the best ideas tend to gain traction across the teams. So it logically respects independence. That's the starting point, and it respects teams' ability to make decisions autonomously as well. But there's a culture that helps bring them together in working through and figuring out what's the best way to move forward. So there are top-down standards as well as emergent architecture patterns at Amazon. How did the top-level alignment on, for example, API standards really get established? There were actually, within Amazon, two competing ways, at least two, there were others too, but they were less dominant, in which these distributed systems would work. There was RPC, and then there was REST. And even as late as 2009 and 10, there was RPC and REST. And we were supporting you know, both ways of developing systems. But at some point, we actually did, over time, come to the conclusion that the REST was the way to move forward. And so we deprecated some of the you know, ways in which other systems would work and they migrated over to one standard. So as you can see, it's not all clean. It is a little bit chaotic. There is a bias towards uh, independence and team autonomy and ability to make decisions, but they respect the results of what works. And there's a strong and general exchange of ideas and communication that drives the direction. How do architecture and standards promulgate within Amazon? 
principals and certainly senior principals, distinguished engineers, you know, will belong within an organization at certain levels such that they're plugged into multiple teams. But in the core Amazon engineering, all levels, including distinguished engineers, um, work on code. It's an expectation that you are checking in code. Um, it is very much part of the culture. But the way in which they work often is they'll work on some of the key elements of it. So they'll get into the frameworks part of it and they'll write the enabling pieces of work that then allow others to join and build the bigger thing that they're, that they're building. And so they're very strongly influential and very leveraged in how they work. And they work through or with two pizza teams and they work across two pizza teams. So it's a mix of both. And they mentor engineers across these teams. How do new engineers get up to speed? Is there an indoctrination process? There are wiki pages within Amazon. And literally each team has its own wiki and continues to evolve over time. You know, so when you are new to a team, you get to know where the stuff is, where the information is, and you work off the wikis. And of course, in, from an engineering standpoint, there are standards about how you write your code, how you document your code, and so you can have access to all of that. So knowledge and learning has a, a high degree of self-service capability. No matter how much you can access information, it can be a lot faster to be able to, to, you know, to ask somebody and learn from that. So within the two pizza team, the notion of horizontal communication is very productive, very effective. It's when you scale it that the problem starts, which is kind of why we sort of set the boundary of where this communication works really well is around about eight people or so. When something is created that should be reusable, how does that propagate within Amazon? Success in Amazon is not based upon the fact that you delivered software. The next better measure of it is how well is it being used? And, and certainly in products that are API oriented, you're looking at traffic and you're measuring the number of users of those particular APIs. And so adoption is your better measure of success, right? And ultimately, of course, the best measure of success is the reason why you wrote the API. And so the outcome that customers or clients realize from using your APIs, um, especially their platform products, the metrics that you're going to look at is how many new customers registered for it and how many new customers then utilize your particular API, not just using it once or using it occasionally. And is, you know, so you measure your, your growth metrics associated with it as well. How might one measure the impact of an API? For example, I know you were involved in the creation of a low latency database for Amazon. That was designed to be a very low latency um, storage uh, solution. And it had this interesting idea that you could actually have compute close to storage. So obviously for us, the metrics then became what kind of latencies are these customers getting? Because they told us they needed maybe nanoseconds, you know, maybe tens of nanoseconds kinds of uh, latencies, right? And so we want to be able to measure and see, you know, what latencies are they indeed getting? As they scale, are they still sustaining those? In the initial stages, we define SLAs that are more universal, but some of them may need tighter and tighter SLAs. And so we want to be able to support and sustain these kinds of things. So we look for the metrics that are the outcomes that they were looking for in this particular case, low latency for their application and the ability for the application to work in those modes and then make sure that they work. Architecture that's both directed and emergent. Measurable outcomes from reusable components. Alignment and autonomy both together. Balance between horse and rider allows for a smoother ride. Thanks, Harsha. Stay tuned to Agile Storytime for more informative, insightful, and inspiring stories. Thank you.
This is a podcast from Boston Consulting Group. For more information on enterprise agility, go to on.bcg.com slash agile.